Monsters of the Multiverse comes out this week for general release on D&D Beyond and available for sale. Should you pick up Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes and Volo's Guide to Monsters on D&D Beyond? We'll answer that question. We're going to take a look at a new virtual tabletop called Above VTT, a very exciting virtual tabletop. We are going to take a look at the Kobold Press Kickstarter for Campaign Builders, Cities and Towns. We may talk about Hex Flowers, a kind of interesting DM tool, and we're going to have our first set of May Patreon questions all today on the Lazy D&D Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want to help support shows like this, you can do so by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive material, video previews, previews of upcoming events, previews of upcoming material, and a lot of exclusive material if you like what you were seeing if you want to see more of it please help me out by becoming a patron of sly flourish but let's get into the talk it was announced i i, I read this yesterday that morden canaan's tome of foes is actually going to be available one day early i don't know why it's one day early but it is so apparently tomorrow on the 16th of may we are going to be able to buy morden canaan's monsters of the multiverse as a single book and not have to buy it as part of a three book package and it will be available on DD beyond wizards of the coasts DD beyond so that is going to be interesting. They have already added legacy tags to all of the monsters that exist inside the original Volos Guide to Monsters and Morning Kanan's Tome of Foes. So apparently you're still going to, if you own those books, you'll still have access to both sets of stat blocks. If you own those books and Monsters of the Multiverse, you'll have two different stat blocks for a lot of these monsters. One that is normal and one that has a little label of legacy. So that's kind of interesting. I guess there's some downtime as well expected for the site. It's like 12 hours that they're going to be down. So there's some pretty big changes, I think, that are going on. I guess that, that has to do with some of the acquisition from wizards of the coast which i think is official on the 17th as well so it's pretty neat one bit of news that came out that kind of got people a little ruffled right feathers got a little ruffled was that they are going to stop selling volo's guide to monsters and morden canaan's tome of foes on DD beyond you won't be able to buy them after the 17th i think it is i think they'll be available for sale up through the 17th should you buy them I don't think so. I wouldn't bother. The, the, to me, the real value of D&D Beyond is the database stuff, being able to go look up stat blocks. And I am almost certainly going to be using the new stat blocks over the old stat blocks. I think it's going to be very rare for me to go back and want to look at one of the old stat blocks. So I don't think it's particularly handy to have both sets of stat blocks on there. I don't think it's worth having to buy the book. If you feel like, well, it's my only chance to buy it, and what if there's information there I really want? I mean, I'm not going to stand in your way. You can do what you want. But do I recommend it? I don't think so. If I did recommend it, I would recommend buying the physical books. I would recommend going to Amazon and picking up or going to your favorite local game shop or wherever you can pick them up and get Volo's Guide to Monsters and Morden Kanan's Tome of Foes. Almost a sort, sort of like a collector thing, right? It's kind of nice to have them. I'm happy to have them. I have the limited edition covers and I know that no matter what happens, I will always have those books. Like there's no sign that Wizards of the Coast is going to take away your existing purchase of Volo's Guide to Monsters or Morden Kanan's Tome of Foes, right? They're, certainly, they're not going to say like, oh, it's your last chance to buy it. There's going to be a big surge of people buying it. And they're like, oh, by the way, we're not going to give you access to it. There's no reason for them not to give you access to it. So they'll certainly do that. It's possible that they may put the PDFs of those up on the DMs Guild. That would be really cool. I don't know if they will or they won't, but it'd be really cool if they did. But if you really want to be sure, like, oh, I want to have, a, I want to capture this thing. Like, there's a lot of lore for a lot of monsters that's not going to be passed along in, in, in Monsters of the Multiverse. And I'd like to have that lore. I would probably pick up the physical books. So that's, that's kind of my, that's kind of my recommendation. I don't, I don't think I would worry. I don't think I would worry too much about it. I don't, I don't get, I'm not ruffled, right? Like, they're going to do what they do. But the main thing, like, when I look at what the value of D&D Beyond is, is in the stat blocks. And the new stat blocks, I think, generally speaking, are better than the old ones. I don't think I've seen anywhere I'm like, oh, I like the old one better, personally, right? But I haven't looked at all of them yet. I won't I won't be able to look at them until the next couple of days. We'll probably do a, a look at a few of them, because I'm going to be kind of excited. But I do, I do know that I looked at some of the new ones, and I was like, oh, that's nice. Well, you know, there were things I didn't like about the new ones, too. Which is why I didn't buy, like, the collector's edition. Because I was like, oh, I'll just wait. So anyway, that's all coming out this week. So that's kind of exciting. But yeah, if, if anybody, you know, anybody cares about what I have to say about it, uh, I probably wouldn't bother buying 
Volo's Guide to Monsters and Morning Canyon's Tomophos on D&D Beyond, even though it's like your last couple of days to do so. I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about it. I'd just get Monsters of the Multiverse because I think, I think that that's going to be fine. But yeah, if you got, and, and if you really want to preserve it, if you really want the information and you're afraid like, oh, it's going to be gone and you know, well, go buy the, you can go buy the physical books, right? They're, they're still, they're still cheap. And it would not surprise me at all if those books went out of print. Right. I fully expect, I think somebody asked Wizards of the Coast and they did not say one way or the other, but almost certainly, I can't imagine why they'd put those books in print. I mean, I guess like if they're selling, they're selling, but I don't know why they would bother. So I would, I would, I would pick them up. I would not be surprised at all if they went out of print. I think the original D&D starter set is also going out of print, Fandelver. The interesting thing is they're actually going to make the adventure for Fandelver free on D&D Beyond forever. That's pretty cool, right? That's great. It's kind of the opposite. But I would still, I, I would still, you know, I, I like them. I'm, I'm a little bit of a collector, a little bit, and I'm more than happy to have the special edition covers for both Volo's Guide and Morning Canyon's Tomophos. So there we go. I got to play around with a new virtual tabletop this past week, and I thought it was in, good and interesting enough to talk about on the show. So we're going to spend a little bit of time uh, talking about this virtual tabletop. The name of the virtual tabletop is Above VTT. It has one particular angle to it that makes it different than all of the other virtual tabletops out there. A few different angles, really, but one big one, which is it is a virtual tabletop that sits right on top of D&D Beyond. So it is a Chrome plugin. It, you, you need to be using Chrome and all of your players need to be using Chrome. This is kind of a disadvantage of it is you do need to have a plugin. You all need to be using Chrome. I think they have a Firefox extension too. I haven't tried the Firefox one, so I don't know how well one works over the other. It is definitely an alpha product. It is early in its release, but it is useful enough that I was able, I, I played around with it for half an hour before a game. My wife tried it out a little bit and then we passed it to our players and we used it for a night and for, for our game on Wednesday. And generally speaking, people are like, I really like it. It's really handy. And the thing that makes it so useful is how well connected it is to D&D Beyond. It is really just sitting on top of your existing D&D Beyond stuff. So let's, let's, take, let's take a quick look. So I have a browser window up here. If I can find it. Where's my browser window? Don't need that. I lost my browser window. So you can uh, Google above VTT and get it from the Google Chrome store. Make absolutely sure that you're on the Google Chrome store and that it's secure and that it's approved and all that. So you don't download malware because that would be bad. I will paste the link to this in the Twitch chat. And I will also uh, link to it in the show notes below. So if you're watching this and you want to get it, the hold of the plugin, you can do so by going uh, into the show notes below. So it is a Chrome plugin. You need to be using Google Chrome to use it. I think, again, I think they might have a Firefox version as well. I haven't, I haven't tried that out. It is free. You just download it and install it. You don't need to do anything else. You don't need to sign up with any other separate account. It uses your D&D Beyond account, which is which is very cool. Once you have installed the plugin, once you've clicked, it says remove from Chrome because I already have it installed in this browser. You then go to your D&D Beyond encounter page. So for example, you would go, let's say you're on the D&D Beyond page. You go to your collections. You go to my campaigns, right? You, you have all of your campaigns here. You would click on view campaign. And you would get your campaign page. I have a nice picture. This is my Wild Beyond the Witchlight campaign page. And you can see there's a new section here that says above VTT, join is DM. Right? We're going to kill that. And so you click join as DM. If you are a player, let me, let me show that. You can go down to your players and you can, for each of the players, they will see a button that says join above VTT next to their character on the campaign page. They click that and that brings them into their version of the page. It comes up with a splash screen. It's got a little video about how to use it. It's got a bunch of, you know, little, little contributor notes. Keep in mind, again, it is an early release. So the stuff that you're seeing is going to change all the time. So I'm not going to show... I'm not going to get like into a tutorial about how to use it. I'm just going to show some of the features that caught my attention because they're going to be changing this all the time. Uh, I joined their Discord and have been listening to some of the things they're changing in future updates. And it all sounds like really, really good stuff. So I dig it. But I, but I wanted you to uh, just kind of see some of the cool features that it's got. So what you do is you create a scene. Right? We're going to create a new scene. You click on the you know, edit, edit the scene. And we're going to call this Bavlorna's Cottage. Right? And the cool bit is, so import template from, and it's got a little D&D Beyond button, right? It's also got free maps. I'm not going to really dive into the free maps and stuff. I'm going to just talk about it. You click D&D Beyond. 
and it pulls up all of the stuff that you own in D&D Beyond is now listed. I own lots of stuff. So I go down here and I look for Wild Beyond the Witchlight. It says, okay, which chapter from Wild Beyond the Witchlight? And I say, we're going to do, uh, not Hither, whoops. We're going to do Downfall, right? This is where Bavlorna's Cottage is. It brings up all the maps that exist in D&D Beyond. They're already ready to go. You click Import. You click Save. You go to the scene and you click this button. This tells you like this sort of moves who can see what. We're going to switch to the DM view here. And as you can see, we have uh, Bavlorna's Cottage, right? The whole thing, right? The whole cottage. We're going to click on select so we can move around a bit, right? But it loads it from beyond. Then we say, okay, uh, this is great, but you know, I don't want my player seeing all this. So we create a fog of war. You click on fog. We're going to say hide all. It says, are you sure you want to do that? It's going to delete everything. You say, yep, it's done. Everything's in a fog. Then we say, okay, well, we do want to reveal where they start. So you click down here, bang, right? And now if you look, we zoom in and we can see where they are. Now, so if you look over on the right-hand side, we have our game log, right? The, oh, what did I just do? I just did something. And you click on the little meeple here and you get all the characters that are inside your campaign. It shows you their, uh, it shows you all their information. I don't know what the little, is that armor class? That looks like it must be armor class. That's passive perception. Oh, that's cool. It's got their passive perceptions listed there. Their movement speed, all their stuff. Armor class, hit points, everything. And this is drawn directly from their character sheets from D&D Beyond. You drag the little token over, right? You drop it in. You can see it sort of brings in. We'll, we'll bring in a few. Right, just dragging the tokens directly from the character sheet, and again, it's using the, it's using the profile picture of the character sheet. I didn't have to add any of these images in; they're drawn directly from their character sheet. So if the player is updating their character sheet art with the one they like, that's what becomes the token for Beyond Twenty. This is one of these areas. Like I'm a huge Albert Rodeo fan. I love Albert Rodeo, but I have to create tokens for it. Right, I have to go make character tokens or load them, and I lose them all the time, and I have to make new ones and stuff like that. So it is really, it is, it is, it is really cool to be able to pull them directly from Beyond. I'm going to zoom in. Right. So you can see we have our characters. We go to select so I can drag them around. Shows their name when you click on them. All that kind of stuff, right? And zoom out. Then they open a door. And they say we're going to go into that first room. And you go fog. And we reveal square. I always do the reveal a little bit outside the wall so they can see the doors and stuff like that. Bang, right? They see the inside. The characters wander inside. Do, 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 do. right and they're wandering about and our friend intimidating cake says i'm gonna go into this pool and i'm gonna dunk my head into this into this well here and see what's going on there and we go oh thank you so much for doing that you get inspiration you also get attacked by a gelatinous cube we go to gelatinous cube we click the plus icon and it puts a gelatinous cube token ready to go. Hit points. Only the DM can see the hit points in armor class here, but the, the players can see everything else. The gelatinous cube comes out and we go, okay, ready for some magic. We want to roll for initiative, right? Select everybody by dr drawing a big border around them. They're all selected. Right click and say, add to combat tracker. You got this little combat button. You click that. Everybody's in there. Now the players would roll. And as the players roll, Let's actually try this out. So I'm going to go to my witch-like game and we're going to click on Ori and we're going to click initiative, right? Ori rolls initiative and gets a five. We go back to the campaign and look, Ori rolled a five, right? So it goes directly from the D&D Beyond character sheet all the way through directly here on this thing. So I'm going to just manually add their initiatives. I'm not going to roll for every one of the characters, but you saw it, it happened automatically, right? And it automatically sorts them it automatically puts everybody in order, right? And, and there you go. You can see it. And now what we've got, and then you say like next, okay, who goes up, right? What have we got here? And you can go through initiative. A killer feature, all of the players can click that combat thing and see where initiative is. They can see where they are. They can see where the monsters go. They can see what's going on in initiative. That is a huge advantage. That's something that D&D Beyond on its own does not have. It does not have a way for you to share initiative with your players. That feature alone 
makes this really, really handy. Like a lot of it is quality of life stuff, right? A lot of it is like being able to pull a map directly from D&D Beyond and turn it into a battle map in VTT. That is that is awesome, right? You just saw it. It was really cool. Being able to add characters using their art is really cool, right? That's, with all of their stats and stuff, really, really great. Being able to drag a monster, right? And, and throw that right in there, really, really great. But being able to share initiative automatically from D&D Beyond with your players, something D&D Beyond cannot do. There's no good way to do that right now. Here Now there is, right? So for that feature alone, that's, that's beyond... That's beyond just a quality of life feature. That's beyond just, oh, it's really handy for me not to have to move a map into Albert Rodeo or something like that. This is this is outstanding. It is very roll 20-ish in how a lot of its stuff works. You can you can put like condition markers on stuff, you can mark it with other stuff, you can you can change its current and max hit points, you can do all kinds of things. I think there's even some ability to kind of reskin things, right? But I haven't really played around with that too much. It uses the combat tracker log that exists inside D&D Beyond, right? So it doesn't have its own combat tracker. It's got its own, it's sort of, you know, it's got its own thing where it sits on top. I'm just scratching the surface. Again, you are seeing me playing with this. I've probably spent, you know, two or three hours with it. You know, I really haven't spent a lot of time with it. But I can tell you, for running, if you, you know, if, if you have a lot of material in d Beyond, if you're already using d Beyond, if your players are already using d Beyond, if you've invested in d Beyond, being able to drop this on as a plugin from Chrome and be able to access all of that in a virtual tabletop makes it a very, very powerful tool. I was asked earlier, do I like it more than Owlbear? They are different tools. Right? I, don't, I don't look at Owlbear in this in the same way because Owlbear is completely separate from the game system right? Which means I can use it for Numenera. It means I can use it if we have people that use pen and paper, right? I can use it in different ways. If This works really well if everybody's already in Beyond, and it works really well if you are heavily invested in D&D Beyond. If you're not, it's not probably not for you. If you're heavily invested in Roll20, you're probably not going to want to switch to this, right? But it is a really strong tool for those of us who are already pretty deeply ingrained in D&D Beyond. This is a really, really handy tool. Where is it going? I have no idea. Uh, I can see in the chat, there's lots of question of like, is Wizards going to buy this to jumpstart their VTT? Who could say? Are, are Wizards going to ban them? Are they going to do stuff in there to make sure that they can't use this because they want to sell their own? Who could say, right? I don't know what's going to happen with it. But I also know that the investment in this is low, right? It doesn't cost me anything. I already have all my D&D Beyond stuff. So... If this works for a while, great. And if it stops working, I would be sad, right? But if something else comes along, that's okay too. Don't hang on to any one set of tools too much. And if you invest in a set of tools, know what you're investing. If you've spent hundreds and hundreds of dollars on all of the modules in Roll20, you're probably not going to want to switch out of Roll20 for something else. If you've spent hundreds and hundreds of dollars in d Beyond, you're probably not going to want to leave d Beyond to go somewhere else, right? But a tool like this or Owlbear Rodeo, they don't cost anything, right? They, you, you, you aren't, you're the only investment you have is, you know, it's used during your game, which isn't insignificant, right? Like if you, if you get used to a tool and if your players are used to a tool, that, that really matters. But I'll tell you, my players didn't have any trouble picking this up. I didn't have any trouble picking it up. My wife didn't. And the rest of our players, nobody had trouble picking it up. And it was really, really handy to be so tightly integrated with D&D Beyond. For us, because we use D&D Beyond, because we're pretty heavily invested in it, it is a very powerful tool. And I think for those who are heavily invested in D&D Beyond, this looks really great. They're, again, heavy development. They're doing a lot of new stuff, a lot of new features. I was reading about some of the new features. They sound really good. What you're seeing here, I expect you're going to see some of it change, right? I expect a lot of it will change. New features will get added. But it's really cool. I mean, again, go download the plugin and try it out, right? If, like if, if you're using Chrome, you're using Firefox, go download the plugin, give it a shot, see what you think. Not for everybody, right? But boy, it sure impressed me and impressed me enough that I thought I would uh, talk about it today on the show. So that is Above VTT. You want to learn more about Above VTT, check the show notes below. There's links to uh, the plugin and everything else uh, down there. So our friends at Cobalt Press have a new Kickstarter for the campaign builder, Cities and Towns. This is a whole uh, suite of tools to build 
plots and cities and and NPCs, a homebrewer's guide to better fantasy cities. They have 26 days. They've been going for about four days now, 2,100 backers. Again, you can pick up all different kinds of things that you want to pick up. Do you want to just pick up the PDF? Do you want to pick up the hardcover? I, of course, go for the hardcover. They also have a, they also have a, a dry erase poster maps for their cities, a bunch of them. How many? 10 wet wet slash dry race battle maps that they're including with this and i was like yeah i know that i love the ones i got for scarlet citadel i certainly am a sucker for these kind of maps sure i will go ahead and back it for the maps. so for 90 bucks i'm getting the book the pdf and the map folio all in one big package uh, i think it re looks really good cobalt press stuff has always impressed me like you know cobalt press is one of the companies them money cook games a few others where anytime they put out a kickstarter i back it for all of it i back it for physical and digital because the quality of the books that they put out are outstanding it's the kind of material i definitely use at my table i've used a lot of cobalt press material at my table i really i really like it so so i definitely you know had no trouble at all this is one of those where like i heard it was coming out and i said well let me know as soon as it is because i'm going to back it and you can back it. So uh, I would suggest checking it out. Check out the Kickstarter page and take a look. Who doesn't want materials to build cities and stuff like that? So, so very cool. So give it, give it a look. Check it out. Campaign Builder Cities and Towns for 5th edition by our friends at Kobold Press. So I, th I guess it was a couple weeks ago. I don't remember I heard about this. Somebody, somebody in my chat probably mentioned it. Somebody somewhere, I wish I could remember, maybe if they happen to be in, in, in Twitch today and they can remind me where I heard about this. I heard about an interesting tool called a hex flower. I love random tables, right? But one of the interesting things about random tables is that they are what we refer, what nerds refer to as stateless. Oh, Rango of Arg, that was you who brought it up. Well, thank you for bringing it up because boy, it got me, it got me into a whole different plot line here i you know it got me it got me involved in a whole big thing looking at looking at this stuff and i even built one for city of arches we'll take a look at so what is a hex flower so so one of the things about random tables is there's there's a few different ways to have random tables right you can have a random table where it's like a 1 to 20 list which means every item on the on the list is equally weighted to every other one right you're just as likely to roll a 2 as you are to roll a 17 for a lot of times that works perfectly for my a lot of stuff i did in the companion i think we only did it that way right then you can have weighted uh weighted random tables and a way to do like a weighting random table is if you roll like uh a pair of d6s uh, a 7 is more likely to be rolled than a 2 or a 12 by a lot right and that creates a bell curve right that's that's how these things work interesting thing is if you mix two dice together a d6 and a d8 you have what they call a flat topped bell curve where the top three numbers are equally weighted so if you have a d6 and a d8 i think it's seven eight and nine are all equally weighted on that so if you want to have a bell curve where the middle of it is equally likely mix two dice together like a d4 and a d6 i think it's it's 2.5 plus 3.5 is six so I think that's four, five, and six on a D4 and a D6 are equally weighted together. An interesting little trick for you. So those are two different ways to have like random tables. You have a flat random table where everything is equal. You can have a bell curve where you have, you can have a bell curve where it's, it's, it's a perfect rounded top bell. You can also have a flat top bell curve where you mix two different types of dice to create a flat bell curve. The problem with all of those is they don't have state. They are called, they are stateless. In other words, one role doesn't know what the previous role was. One role doesn't, one role doesn't lead to another role. It doesn't change anything. It doesn't change your odds. So when, when would you care? Well, an example is like if there are certain, let's say you're rolling for like a random monument right and certain types of monuments are more likely to be made by certain types of humanoids so like an archway is more likely to be elven or a tree is more likely to be elven or gnomish than it is to be orcish or draconic right where a dragon statue is more likely to be draconic than it is to be elven if you're rolling twice on a table typically the second roll doesn't know what the first roll did a hex flower is a way to have state with a roll you roll once and it moves you to a state. You then roll again and it knows what your second state is. 
Mike, what the hell are you talking about? That what word you're saying words and I don't know what they mean. Let's take a look. So this is what a hex flower looks like. A hex flower is essentially, I think it's 21, no, 19, right? It's 19 different hexes in a center. And you can think of it like a board game. You start your role in the center of it. This is all, by the way, on the on a blog called Goblin's Henchman. And you can, the, Goblin, the Goblin's Henchman blog talks about this all the time. They have lots of different articles about it. And you can uh, see the links to all of this in the in the notes below they even have a thing called the hex flowers cookbook which is on drive through rpg it's pay what you want three bucks pay the three bucks be a, be a be a be a hero pay the three bucks it's worth it a really cool uh, uh really cool thing and essentially you can think of it like a board game right it, it uses 2d6 you're rolling on a, you're rolling 2d6 but depending on your roll it moves you to a certain spot and then your next roll knows your next roll takes place at the spot that you just moved to. So it's, it's almost like moving around a piece on a board game, right? And you're far more likely to go to another certain space, depending on the space you were in previously. Thus, what we have are rolls with state. So I'm going to show an example that I wrote. Here's, here's, so here's an example. This is a good one, right? This is a good example of, uh, of for weather, right? So you start in the center of it, right? Whatever the weather is, it's the same as it weather resting. You might say it's temperate, right? It's just, it's just a normal day, nothing going on. And you would roll, you, you roll your list. Well, as you can see, if you look at the rolls in the bottom, right here, the way the rolls are working is that you're far more likely to go down in this than you are to go up. It's very likely to go be a fair day than it is to be a storm right? The storm, you're only likely to go straight into a storm if you roll a pair of sixes on a 2d6, which is not very likely. So and as an example, we started same as yesterday, and then we rolled a five, right? Five is a relatively common one. So we go, it's partly cloudy and breezy, right? Well, now, so now the weather's changed. So now we roll again, and this time we rolled a seven, right? That means it went to sunny and clear, right? So same as yesterday, partly breezy, sunny and clear, right? We, we roll again, and re-roll a, that's another seven, right? In this case, this is where the randomness comes in. You can't just keep going down. So the minute you hit, let's see, it says, oh, do not cross a solid line, right? So in other words, we don't, we don't go down here, right? Which would roll us back up to the top. Instead, we just say, nope, it's another sunny and clear day. It sort of rotates down, right? You roll again, hey, a seven again, another sunny and clear day. So you're more likely to get sunny and clear days. And then it's the odd rolls that take you up right? It's the, the roles that are less likely take you up. So what you can do is you can, you basically create uh, the hex flower is a way of creating a random table that, <clears throat> that lets you change the state of things as the roles are taking place. It means that one role alone isn't really telling you everything. It's a series of roles that's changing things. So let's take a look at one that I put together. So here is a really quick here's a really quick hex flower that I put together for traveling through the city of arches, right? I, I had this kind of wacky idea that like you're in the public baths in the city of arches and you're sitting there and you're enjoying your bath and there's this ancient bath, right? And there's all these big tubes and tunnels that sort of lead to different places. And all of a sudden a current grabs you and you go whoop and you go zip and I go, oh no, like a, like a bad water slide, right? And you get sucked into the lower reaches of the city of arches. Let me show a picture of what the city of arches looks like. Right. So here's the side view of the City of Arches. Right. City of Arches, by the way, is a fantasy city that I've put together. It's available to patrons of Sly Flourish. It's a big, it's like a 24 page city source book, city, city guidebook uh, that you can get by being a patron of Sly Flourish. You start in the public baths. Public baths are right here in the center, right where those three statues are. Right. And you get sucked away. You can see all the weird tubes and things and weird chambers that lead you off. So it's like, where do you, where do you go? Like, what ends up happening? So the idea is just, this is sort of a way for a DM to sort of connect locations together. It's not really a useful play aid. It's not something we would run. It's more just like a, a toy. I, I consider it like a DM's toy, right? So in this case, we roll and we rolled a 10, right? So 10 means we go the upper, upper left, which means they ended up in the sealed vaults, right? I don't know where the sealed vaults are. Sealed vaults, I think, are down here, right? So he went sucking through down to this, like below the city of Sunken Rathria, pretty deep, right? Because it was, that was a 10 is kind of a rare roll. Right, so now you're in the sealed vaults. Well, now where do you go, right? Seven takes you to the dead cliffs. So you went from the sealed vaults, you found some tunnels in the sealed vaults that walk up and it takes you up to the cliffs of the dead, up, up, up to the upper north, right? You roll again, you're in the dead cliffs. You roll a six, 
Uh, a six takes you down to the endless warrens, which makes sense because the dead the dead cliffs are sitting on the endless warrens. Endless warrens are over here on the left side of this map, right? You're in the endless warrens. So let's see. We went public baths. We went to sealed vaults, dead cliffs, endless warrens. We roll again, and we get a three. A three takes us to the lower reaches, right? So now you've gone from the endless warrens. You found weird caves. This actually jumped around quite a bit, probably more than I would thought. So you're in the lower reaches out here, and you, you sort of wander your way around, and next thing you know, you end up in the lower reaches, which is like a hospital part of the town. It's not so bad. You're like, oh, I'm not far from the public baths again. That's that's nice, right? And you can just keep rolling. A three again. So this, where were we? We were at the lower reaches, and a three Take us to the lost cisterns, right? One level below the lower reaches, right? So you go, oh no, we go to the lower reaches. Boom, down here into the lost cisterns. So you can see like you're exploring and every role remembers where the previous state of the role was. Really kind of a neat tool. So what are the sorts of things where a tool like this matters? Something like weather matters. Something like political climate in a, in a city is something where you could fill out the hex flower. Again, rare stuff is, is up, up higher. More common stuff is down below. And the, the situation in a town or a city, a political situation in a state, uh, you could use this to kind of determine what the, what, how things are changing and evolving like in a city. Any, anything where a situation can, be, can, can change and some things are more likely than others, but not impossible for rare things to happen. That's where hex flowers come, come in. So I really, I thought it was really cool. I, I loved the idea of, of hex flowers. Again, you can find a link in the show notes below that talk all about using it. You can also pick up the, the hex flower cookbook available on drive RPG. gives nice templates. I use the template to uh, help generate the thing for my, for the city of arches, really kind of a neat tool. So I would, I would, I would, you know, give it a look. It's kind of a neat tool, you know, something, something cool, to, something cool to try out. Let us talk about some Patreon questions. Let's look at some Patreon questions. These are every month on the SciFlourish Patreon. I put up a new post asking for questions that anybody wants to ask about running games, running RPGs, running D&D or whatever. And I select a few of these questions and we talk about them here on the show. So this begins our Patreon questions. David P. says, you talk about having three villains in a campaign. Do you tend to introduce them linearly, e.g. they defeat villain one, villain two steps into the picture, or do you like to weave them in uh, or overlap them? We actually had this conversation on uh, the Sly Flourish Discord server, also available to patrons of Sly Flourish. If you become a patron of Sly Flourish, you get access to the Patreon channel of uh, the Sly Flourish Discord server. And we talked about this. And we, so what we did is we, so one of the things to think about with villains like this is that you, you, there isn't one right way to do it. You can have a sequence of villains where one leads to the next. You could have like the sub boss, the sub sub boss, the sub boss and the boss, right? And each one is sort of a villain that the characters deal with. You could have three totally different ones that are all part of one central plot line. So like three different groups of the cult of the dragon, three different main villains of the cult of the dragon, all doing stuff to bring Tiamat back. Uh, or you can have totally separate storylines where you have three villains doing three totally different things. The adventure legacy of the Crystal Shard and to a, a good piece of Rime of the Frost Maiden have villains who are not really involved with the other villains. Oral isn't really concerned about the Duergar building their war machine, which isn't really concerned about what's going on in the city of Yethrin below, right? Those are all sort of separate plot lines. So... You can certainly intermix your different villains in different ways. And it's up to you to decide how you want to do it, right? It's generally nice to have three just so you have a lot of different variables going on. But there isn't one right or wrong way to do it. It's not like it's always better to have three villains that are all sequential. If you, if you have them in series, if you have like one main villain now, you're going to have a more linear campaign, right? If you have a villain that you're dealing with, like your tier one villain, your tier two villain, and your tier three villain, it probably works better to have a little bit of spaced out the overlap. So you know that, oh, that, that villain is tied to this villain. But I generally like to have three current villains or three current fronts that are all sort of moving forward that all have some interwoven, you know, interwoven tapestry of their plots so that there's some sequence to the adventure, sort of a wide yet still, still one direction sort of campaign but there isn't a right or wrong way to do it there's no there's no rule that says you have to do it in sequence or you have to do it in parallel you know that that they you know you you get to decide in your campaign the only idea is it's it's nice to have villains it's nice to have more than one so there's some variable 
things going on there. And it's nice to make sure that the quests that they have are robust, that if the characters destroy their quest, either they succeed and the quest is over, or the villain has alternative paths that they can take to get their job done. I have a YouTube video where I talk about that. So David, thank you for the question. Hope that answers your question. D. Vincent says, I know you're not a Fuzzle fan. No, I'm not. And by the way, neither am I. However, I do believe that they can be a value in particular for exploration. Part of the challenge for me, however, is to make sure that the characters, not the players, are the ones working on the solution. For example, another DM in my group who does who does like puzzles had to contend with an Int 8 barbarian solving mysterious arcane riddles while the Int 14 warlock looks stumped. How do you avoid this type of situation? Bonus question. Since Numenera is so exploration-centric, have you developed new ideas or techniques for implementing puzzles compared to the last time you were asked about them? Yeah, so I don't, I don't, I don't like puzzles for a few reasons. One is they're hard to put together, right? They're, they're not very lazy. It's not very quick and easy to put a puzzle together because you got to make sure that they work. You got to make sure they work certain like. The other question is a lot of time puzzles don't make sense for the situation in the world. Like, why is it that somebody put a Sudoku puzzle on their vault door when anybody who can figure out a Sudoku puzzle can get in? Like, imagine if your front door of your house had a Sudoku puzzle. It's like, oh, well, no one can get in here except me who knows the answer or anybody who can figure out Sudokus, right? Like, that's not... That's not useful. So on occasion, it's kind of fun to use like a Caesar cipher. Like you have bad villains that are using like a Caesar cipher to kind of code their messages and the characters get a hold of one of the messages and they have to like figure out the Caesar cipher in order to crack the code. That's not so bad. That kind of makes sense from an in-world perspective. But a lot of times, like you look at Skyrim style vault door puzzles and you're like, who put this here and why? Like who cared, right? Who, who, who made this weird puzzle where like this had to be the case right how does anybody else ever get through here so a lot of times they don't really make sense like why why does this exist in the world right it's really just there to challenge a player so the whole question of like if you have a innate barbarian who's figuring out the arcane riddles if you set up a puzzle that's challenging the players you don't call for a skill check right if you generally speaking if you're if your barbarian figured it out let them come up with a reason why the barbarian figured it out but don't bother to make a skill check right because you're not really when you create a puzzle like this you're not really challenging the characters you're challenging the players if you're challenging the characters you just say there's a strange bunch of complicated runes on the wall roll an intelligence check and add your arcana bonus if you're trained in arcana right and then you're like yeah you figure out that they all go in a certain sequence and you open the door that way you're challenging the characters not the players right so you got to choose since numenera's exploration static have i developed new ideas or techniques for implementing puzzles no uh, i like to build situations to me the world is the puzzle the situation is the puzzle and the way that the players decide that their characters are going to act in the world that's what i'm interested in right i'm not interested in like how do they crack a door so example is like in theory there i have i have like data sphere things and data data nodes and they're trying to crack them in in cyberspace sort of stuff in numenera and, you know, I just have them roll challenges because I'm, like, I'm not going to figure out some goofy puzzle that they have to break through. I might describe what it looks like as they're sort of creating an icebreaker that's piercing through ice and the ice shatters and that gets them into a database. But I'm not really going to build a puzzle. So, yeah, I'm still I'm still not I'm still not sworn on puzzles. Other people are. If you love puzzles, again, go with the gods. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm not saying like, oh, no one should ever do a puzzle. I'm just giving reasons why I'm not why I'm not a big fan of puzzles and that I tend not to focus on them. I did. I did a lot of puzzles. I did. I had like physical puzzles that we put on the table and they had to figure out, right? And it was like, that's like a different game, right? It's like you're asking people to be better at a different type of game. We're playing a different game here. That's my thought. Stash says... I am struggling with a problem in my remote game and not sure how to resolve it. I have two players that will not stop bickering. They will argue and take offense over the smallest things. Last game, they kept sniping at each other because one asked the other to repeat themselves. Unfortunately, I can't ask either to leave because it will cause my group to fall apart. One of the players is the cousin of a third player and the other player is constantly being defended by a fourth. I inherited the group and I want to keep playing, but no matter how much I talk to both parties, they cannot seem to be civil to each other. This is a very... the the, the the people part of running a D&D game can be like that. I would say that the, the hardest part of running a D&D game is getting a good group together in the first place and getting them to come regularly to the table. I think that that is by far the trickiest part of getting into this game. Very, very hard. The next hardest thing is that as DMs, we're kind of leading the group and we have to use we have to we have to deal with people issues right and these come up a lot and i know that like it's not fair to ask dms to be the ones to have to deal with situations like this like we're we're, we, we're not psychologists right we're not thought leaders right we just want to run a DD game but sometimes we find ourselves in the position where we have to deal with situations like this it's not fun we don't like it 
and we can learn how to do it, right? We can learn about like, you know, non-confrontational discussion of the topics. We can learn about looking at the situation, not looking at the people, not judging the people, but judging the situation saying this situation is not tenable. I'm, I'm really not having fun running this game. I feel like, you know, there's a lot of keywords, right? I feel like, right? Don't, don't say way things are, just say how you feel, right? I, I feel like, I'm hearing people just bickering at each other all the time and we're not having, I'm not having fun and we need to do something about this. Right. But the other, so there's a lot of stuff about how to deal with, how to deal with tricky bits like this, but there's another part too, which is there are hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of D and D players out there who are great players who really love the game and want to enjoy the game who can't find a DM. So if you're a DM and you have a group and the group's not having a good time and they're not running it for you, right? You, you, you know, there, it, it, I mean, it's hard. Like there's people, you know, and especially if it's like family members or friends that you really love, but you might tone it back and say, I'm, I'm going to move to one month, one day a month instead of one day, one day a week. Right. And look for other players because they're out there and they want DMs, right? They want player players are out there looking for dms and it's hard again we're back to problem one which is it's hard to find the right people to bring to the table to run a game that you want to run but it can be done i've got i've got some links in the show notes that 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 can help with this a little bit you know but keep in mind that if you if you're with a group of people and you're not having fun and and maybe they're not having fun or other people aren't having fun it might be time to take a step back and remember that there are especially with an online group right especially one when you inherited right like you, you don't owe people running a D and D game, right? You don't, you don't owe them that, right? You can, you know, you can take a step back. And, and again, like if you love the game, there are lots of people out there who really want to play, who will probably be great. So yeah. So I'm, it's a, I wanted to talk about this question because it's a common one, this common, like, boy, you go to Reddit and you read about player, they have a player problem thread, right? And they're almost, it's one of these where like, Hey, I'm, I'm worried that my boyfriend is cheating on me. What should I do? And it's like, they're cheating on you leave. Right. You get the same sort of thing in here. Like, Oh, I have this group and they're really mean to me and they're mean to each other. What should I do? And like, leave, leave and start a new group. And it's so easy to say, right. And I don't want to say how easy it is to say this. Cause it's not, this is a hard situation. This is a very hard situation. But keep in mind that there's a lot of players out there who currently aren't playing, who would love to play, that are great. Keep that in mind. So Stash, I hope that I hope that helps. I, I know it's a, it's a tough problem. It's a really it's a really it's a really tricky bit. Eric L, I haven't been satisfied with the tone while running Primeval Thule using 5e. Robert Howard Conan like setting. I actually wrote some stuff of Primeval Thule. There's bits. I think Niar Lothotep. If you read the section about Niar Lothotep, I, there were two sections of Primeval Thule I wrote. One of them was about Niar Lothotep. It was one of my early uh, freelance things uh, i didn't feel like the days of high adventure do you have a quiver full of lazy dm tips for this so this gets into the idea that like as a dm how you project the world is what the feeling of that world is going to be like and if you're running rhyme of the frost maiden where it's really cold and brutal and there's aliens alien entities out there and there's like the hammering under the ice and there's like a god who's freezing everyone to death how you describe the things that they see the kinds of monuments they run into the kinds of people and how those people react to them things that they feel in the air like oh yeah you know and then you look a while beyond the witch light and everything's kind of wacky and 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 everything's very kind of you know you've got you know toad people you know in little rowboats with hats right how you project that stuff is how the atmosphere of that game is going to feel. And I, it, it became very apparent to me, switching from Rime of the Frostmaiden to Wild Beyond the Witchlight, how important it is for us to know and to consciously recognize the theme that we're projecting, the feeling of the atmosphere that we're projecting, and how we project that, how we describe things, what kinds of things we describe, the NPC interactions. Is it funny and whimsical? Is it brutal and, and, and dark? right? We're going to see that. We're going to feel that. And, and you can mix like, again, I'm doing the dreadful incursions and while being the witch light. So sometimes it's very optimistic and wacky. And then other times it's really dark and dismal. So I'm beating around the bush, but again, sort of a bigger topic on top of this specific question, which is if you, I mean, Hey, if you don't like primeval fool, cause you feel like the atmosphere of it is certainly going in a direction that is not for you, 
pick a different one. Because I think Midgard is certainly more optimistic in days of high adventure in a, in a setting like Midgard where you have clockwork people and you have sort of higher tech, higher magic stuff. You could, you know, pick a different world. But if you want like days of high adventure, right, which is different than like high magic and high fantasy, right? I think the kinds of adventures you put out, adventures that aren't like save the world from Thulsa Doom and are instead like, hey, there's this old crypt full of treasure. We'd like to hire you to go find the treasure and bring it back and you can have 50% of it, right? That like, The theme of the kind of adventures you run and the way you describe them as they're happening is what can give you that feeling that you're going for. Like Days of High Adventure to me is about like treasure hunting, you know, thwarting danger for profits, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? Think about when, you know, Conan the Barbarian, right? Conan, the, Conan and, his, and, his, and his two friends break into a serpent tower of Thulsa Doom, right? And their goal is to get the Eye of the Serpent, this really, really valuable gemstone, right? They, they hear about the Eye of the Serpent. They're really there. They're thieves, right? They're just there to go steal. That's high adventure. Now, Conan finds out that the symbol inside the Serpent Tower is the same symbol as the group of people that murdered his whole family and murdered his village. Well, that's now a new subplot. But it's still high, like climbing up a tower, breaking inside, fighting off cultists, and stealing an emerald. That is high adventure, right? So think about the kinds of adventures you're running, and think about the, the how you're projecting it is, is what I recommend. Eric, I hope I hope that helps. The Meowster says, a recurring problem for my session is pacing. Not, not just you, everybody's. Pacing is a tricky, tricky bit. Some reasons are internal, ADHD, and some external. Party splitting to three areas. I noticed this particularly when my Curse of Strahd party split to meet with key NPCs in Veliki. I wanted to know if you thought more about pacing, particularly regarding party splitting multiple scenes or others as or what others have had success with. Yeah, so I mean, anytime you split the party, right, you, you're, it's challenging, right? Because you now have a group that you're focused on and a group that you don't. I have heard of people using initiative, right? And you just roll for initiative and you go around the table like initiative, only they're in different places of the world. The easy thing is to get lost into one story when you're focused on it and then forget about the three other people that are somewhere else. And you really want to be driving to, okay, let's go to this group over here. You guys are doing this. Okay, now let's go back to this group. You're doing this, right? That switch is the important part of pacing. And you have to remember that that other group is waiting to go. And there's, you know, the problem is you're in flow, right? And you lose track of time when you run in game. So it's really easy to forget about the fact, oh, there's these three others. So you just be real careful. Like when you're splitting the party like that, be real careful to be thinking about the people who aren't on screen and how fast you're going to be able to get to them. Right at every beat where it's like, okay, that's a good place to stop. Let's go back to our group over here. Do it. And then everything you can to get everybody back together so that they're all in focus on one scene. That's really important too. So I, I hope that helps a bit. Again, you could roll initiative and that way you're jumping from character to character and kind of talking about it. Even though you're not in a battle or anything like that, that can work. But it's really hard to, it's really hard when you got a split group to remember that you need to move, move the camera over. So always keep it in mind. Put a note in front of you or something. Like remember the other group and switch as soon as it's convenient and switch every couple of minutes right? Like don't spend 10 or 15 or 20 minutes with one group. Spend f no more than five minutes, three, two, three, five minutes before you jump to the other group. Master, I hope that helps. Stephen G says, traditionally gold and other valuable treasure is meant to motivate PCs to go do stuff, but there isn't much by default to spend it on in fifth edition. How do you handle gold? Do PCs want it? What do they spend it on to motivate them? So there's a few things. This is a common common concern, common problem with 5e. I, I've heard about this uh, a lot, right? I've heard, I've heard this problem a lot. And there's a few things you can do. I, I really am a fan of give the players a home base and let them build up their home base with, with things they got. So where they're going to spend their gold, a home base is a good place to do it, especially like give them something expensive. Give them like the equivalent of like a Lamborghini that they're going to have to fix the tires all the time on. And the insurance is outrageous, right? If you give them like an airship, I gave my, my, my Storm Kings, or sorry, my Horde of the Dragon Queen group got a mobile castle that they had to float around, right? They turned it into a, uh, a, a timeshare, right? And they would have people on that could live, rich people would come and spend time. The rich people were pains in the asses. It was so much fun. And, but to keep the thing in the air, they had to burn magic items up, right? They had to fuel magic items. They had to throw magic items into the furnace, right? It was such a good way. And they could get, they could, they had to get gold to buy magic items so they could punt, punt the magic items in there, right? Or go hire wizards, right? And so there was a lot of costs. They had a lot of money, but they had a lot of costs. And we figured out like what, it was like 40,000 gold a month to keep that thing going, right? So they had to 
they had to keep that money going. Building up a home base, maintaining a home base, all that stuff's in the player's handbook too, but you can make it more fantastic with sort of fantastic features that cost more. How much does it cost for a scrying pool, right? How much does it cost for really expensive bits, you know, rejuvenation pods? So what are some of the things that they could spend lots of money on and then get them interested in buying that? You can also have them buy magic items kind of, Xanathar's, I think, has a pretty fun way of you having to spend money to like fence magic items, right? You have to like build contacts and set up parties and find meeting places and bring people in. And then what you get are like random, you know, here are three random magic items that you can buy. And that way it's not like they get to make the one weapon that they've always wanted to make. Instead, it's like, oh no, I want to do this. But then you could also say like, oh, if you're planning on making a magic item, well, here's how the costs are going to go. You have to do quests to get the pieces, but you're also going to have to pay to have the people work on it. And it's going to take you a while and you might not have it till your seventh or eighth level, but by then it might go about. So that's another way to kind of, you know, use money up. You have these money sinks in your game where the, where the, where the money matters. Paying for political stuff, like maybe they're, you know, Oh, well, we have three masked lords of Waterdeep that we're paying off to kind of go our way, right? What are what are different ways that you can use the money to buy off political factions, right? Or support political factions. Oh, we love the Harpers. We're going to give a lot of money to the Harpers so that the Harpers network can get bigger, right? We're going to have bards in different towns. Lots of different things you can do like that to, to get gold. What I find is that as my games progress, we just don't pay attention to gold anymore, right? It, it doesn't get rewarded very often or they keep track, but they never really spend it. And that's okay because they're busy with other things. And I think like as adventurers, especially in a plot driven thing, the money's just not the motivator. The motivator is we got a villain, we got a defeat of the world is going to end, right? So I think that that, I think that that, those, those are some ideas. I don't, I don't have a perfect answer to this. I don't have a perfect answer to any of these things. There's no perfect answers. But Steven, tell me, I hope, I hope that helps. Christopher W., have you ever felt unsure where to take a homebrew campaign next? How do you figure out what to do? I'm currently running a homebrew adventure set in Strixhaven, and we've had a good time, but I'm feeling at a loss for what to do next. Yeah, this happens frequently, right? When you're running a homebrew campaign, you really don't know what's going to happen, right? So I always try to say like, well, what's that one shining star out there? What's the one thing that we're all kind of leading towards? The rise of the fourth emperor, this evil entities from another world is coming. That's the center. And then how does it like, how do things kind of coalesce around that? So, you know, again, if you don't have any, whipping up some villains who are the main villains and what are they doing and who how do they need to be stopped what's your central theme you can always at any point in your campaign stop reset and start the campaign over again just like you'd be starting a brand new campaign what's the theme of the campaign what's the elevator pitch who are the villains you know what's the drive and motivators that are bringing the characters involved and sort of narrow it back down i talk about like stephen king when he wrote the stand uh, was like halfway through the book and realized i don't know where the hell this book is going i've got these two groups i got good guys and bad guys they're both building up towns. I've got like 48 main characters. What do I do? And he's like, I need to kill off a bunch of the characters and then send their other ones on a quest. And that's what he did. Like halfway through the book, the book changes and it's four characters that are going on a quest to stop evil, right? He narrowed it down, refocused that. What are the, what's the main goal? What's the plot? Who are the villains? What are they doing? And, and narrow it down. And basically at any point in your campaign, you can just hit the reset button and just shrink it down right? And say, this is the one thing that they need to do. And this is where it's going. And that's the goal of the overall campaign. And that might change, right? But right now that's what it can be. Christopher, I hope that answers your question. My friends, that is it for today on the Lazy D&D Talk Show. I want to thank everybody for hanging out with me this morning while we got to talk about all things D&D. If you enjoyed this show, you can help me out by subscribing to my channel right here on YouTube, supporting me directly on Patreon, going to the Sly Flourish bookstore and picking up any of my books, or subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter. All the links for that are in the show notes below. Thank you all so much for hanging out with me today. Have a great day and get out there and play some D&D.